Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rory Dixon, Assistant Professor of Religion and Culture at the University of Winnipeg, about his exciting new book, Living Sufism in North America, Between Tradition and Transformation, published by the State University of New York Press in 2015. Roy Dixon's book is the first monograph in English to focus on Sufism in North America. On this note, he takes a risk by marking himself as a trendsetter in this emerging field, and he succeeds admirably. The book offers a fine balance of historical analysis, ethnographic fieldwork, and theoretical frameworks which can help inform future studies of Sufism in the West and in North America specifically. Although there are a few edited volumes that explore Sufism in the West, Dixon's single-author voice gives continuity to his study and narrative in an important and unique way. One of the elephants in the room, moreover, that he tackles head-on is in response to the following question. What's the relationship between Islam and Sufism? In a way, responses to this question are what produced the phenomenon of Western Sufism in the first place, and the cacophony of voices that continue to address this question animates much of Dixon's book. He treats a number of so-called Islamic as well as so-called non-Islamic Sufi orders and remains in conversation with the various time periods and influences that affect his work throughout his well-written and fascinating book. Thus, although he focuses on North America, the reader is frequently reminded that Europe, South Asia, and other places are also an important part of the conversation. On top of Dixon's careful attention to detail, extensive footnotes, and thoughtful placement of excerpts from the many interviews he conducted, he writes in a very inviting and accessible manner, which will likely draw broad readership, ranging from scholars of Sufism and American religion to journalists, as well as lay readers wishing to know more about America's layered interactions with spirituality, Islam, and religion in general. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Rory Dixon. Good afternoon, Rory. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Good afternoon, Elliot. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited to talk with you. Um, And I was thinking also it's exciting to talk with you as well because... I was recalling when we first met about 10 years ago, uh, we actually ended up talking about Sufism in North America as one of our sort of get-to-know-you sorts of things. So it's so cool to see you writing a book on the topic. Great. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I remember that too. It's hard to believe it was uh, 10 years ago. but uh. <laughs> Yeah, that, so that, that's another issue about time flying. But so how did one of the questions we like to start off with on the program is for the authors to tell us a little bit about how they got interested in the field. So how did you get interested in Islamic studies broadly and then in your book topic specifically? Yeah, well, I I think for myself, I I got what I would call the religion bug in my late teens where I just became really fascinated with uh, religions in general and um, was sort of reading everything that I could on them. I, I pretty soon was focusing in on contemplative traditions and then soon after that, I uh, started to focus on uh, Islam and Sufism in particular uh, in my own interests. And so that uh, started to translate into writing undergraduate papers uh, on Islam and Sufism. 
Um, and then when I was in graduate school, uh, I met my uh, who would become my uh, doctoral supervisor, Professor Mina Sharifi Funk at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University and was really inspired by her approach and, and decided I wanted to work with her uh, to do a, a PhD uh, on, on the subject of, of Sufism. Um, now, the, the program that I did my PhD in, it's a joint program at Wilfrid Laurier University in the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, uh, Canada. And that particular program has a focus on religious diversity in North America. Um, so it was a, a good fit for um, studying Sufism in, in this uh, region. Mm-hmm. So aside from your doctoral supervisor, were there any either texts that you came across in graduate school or during this sort of religion bug contemplative search you're talking about that had a really big impact in shaping your interest in religion? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many, it's kind of hard to narrow it down. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, when, um, when I first started getting interested in religions, probably one of the first books that I read was Houston Smith's uh, World Religions uh, Introduction. Um, and uh, I still think it's a fantastic book. I mean, obviously, it's been critiqued as reflecting an, an older understanding of, of religion, but uh, I still think it's a, a fantastic book, and um, you know, that was certainly something that, that piqued my interest. Um, I think as I got more into religious studies, one of the things, even more than texts, I guess I would say, probably people that I was working with sure, sure. Um, kind of uh, helped this, this turn towards field work was a big one for me. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty avid reader, as most people in academia are, I think. Um, but it was having professors kind of uh, push me out into the field, so to speak. Um, people like Ron Grimes, uh, Michelle Desjardins at uh, Laurier, uh, who really offered a lot of training, a lot of enthusiasm for field work. Uh, and that, I think, really took a, you know, it, it took a turn in, in my work when I started to focus on that. Awesome. And I want to get back to this idea of field work, which is obviously one of the really salient aspects of your book, and I think sets it apart from other types of uh, work in the field. But so now, th- thank you for telling us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in things. So if we can just jump into the book now, let's start with the title. So it's Living Sufism in North America Between Tradition and Transformation. So I yeah. think the geography is pretty straightforward. But I think there's some key words there that say a lot about some of your concerns and, and interests. So could you say something about what you mean by living Sufism? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, living Sufism is, is to emphasize the fact that um, I'm, I'm studying Sufism as, as a tradition that is uh, dynamic, um, that is, is changing. And I'm particularly looking at that dynamism, at, at that change. Um, one of the things that I found uh, when I was studying the subject was uh, the one, the diversity. I mean, I was really struck by the diversity of, of Sufism in North America. Uh, and I was also really struck by the fluidity of, of the tradition, the, the way in which it was being adapted in a whole variety of ways. And so I think that's why I wanted to, to include that, that term. Um, in terms of uh, tradition and transformation, uh, ba- basically, that was highlighting what I think is one of the main tensions that I found in my discussions with uh, Sufi teachers, Sufi leaders, was this tension between, um, you know, what to maintain from the traditions that they had uh, learned and been trained in, uh, and what to transform or change for their North American students. 
Um, and, and that particular question was one that they differed on quite profoundly. I mean, that I, I felt that was sort of a, a pivot point where you would see um, some particular orders based on how teachers answered that, that question, going in one direction and other orders going in another. And so that, that idea of uh, this tension between um, maintaining elements of, of tradition uh, or transforming them um, was why I, I focused on that in the title. Mm-hmm. And so... So let's let's talk about the ethnography then. So you mentioned, you know, talking with actual Sufi teachers in the flesh has been an important part of your project. So could you tell us, you, you interview and talk with groups, you know, uh, all throughout America. And so could you say a little bit about how you how you set up these these site visits and maybe what some of the more memorable experiences you had were? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, one interesting thing I, I found about it was, and I, I would think this might be helpful for people who are beginning a project that involves some field work, is uh, certainly you, you sometimes have to knock a few times before doors start to open. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to initially send a lot of emails, not maybe get as many responses as you'd like. But one of the things that I found is is uh, something like uh, a snowball effect in a sense. And, and really the, the first interview that I secured for the project was with uh, Pirzia Iniet Khan of um, what was the Sufi Order International, recently been renamed the Iniati Order. And um, once I was able to interview him, uh, it was really nice then to email other Sufi teachers and say, I've just finished an interview with Pirzia Iniet Khan. Would you be interested in you know, participating in this project? And, and even having that one interview seemed to really open doors with other Sufi teachers. And of course, once then you get two or three uh, you know, then you can send out an email saying I've interviewed these people, and it, it really helped the momentum of of securing interviews. Um, so that that was interesting. Um, I mean, one interesting thing was also different teachers, you know, operate differently. Um, and I'm sure we'll chat a bit more about Said Hossein Nasser, but uh, in particular, as a as a scholar um, and practitioner who identifies as a traditionalist. Uh, I think really one of the main reasons why I was able to get an interview with him is that I was actually friends with one of his students uh, in his, his Sufi order who said, look, if you really want to contact him, you should probably handwrite him a letter. Um, you know, don't don't email, but actually handwrite and mail him a letter and that will, you know, probably bear more fruit. And sure enough, I did that and was able to get the interview with him. So, Yeah, that's that's a cool story. To, you know, people, people still handwrite letters. It's good yeah, to well, know. So, obviously, you know, you're mentioning that you're an avid reader and obviously you're engaged in this topic of Sufism and have been reading on the topic for a while. So once you started your ethnography, if ethnographies and interacted with people, mm-hmm. how did this like change the kinds of questions you were asking and the way you were thinking about your project? I, I would say it was pretty radical, you know, and this gets back to having professors like you know, my PhD supervisor, Mina Shriki Funk, and uh, Ronald Grimes, Michelle Desjardins, Carol Duncan, people who were um, I was taking courses with, who were on my PhD committee, all of whom really had this emphasis on, on the importance of fieldwork. And, uh, you know, I didn't really get it until I started going and visiting uh, Sufi uh, centers and spending time there uh, interviewing teachers, um, you know, uh, seeing rituals. Uh, it, it was radical, I would say. And, and one of the ways that it affected um, my, my study is I'd done all this reading beforehand and I, I had these sort of neat categories in my mind of, well, this is going to be an Islamic Sufi order. This is going to be a sort of Islamic or quasi-Islamic 
uh, Sufi order. This is going to be a universalistic or uh, non-Islamic or, or New Age. And I, I sort of had these categories relatively cemented in my mind from the readings that I'd done. Uh, but when I actually went and met with Sufi teachers and, and spoke with people at their centers and spent time at their centers, I started to find that uh, what I was seeing was, in a sense, dissolving some of these categories. Um, I started seeing some of these sort of both and where I thought, well, this doesn't quite fit in this category, but also doesn't quite fit in that one. And so that became one of the big um, findings, I would say, of my research was that, you know, when you really spend some time up close with Sufi groups and speaking with Sufi leaders, uh, you, you start to find that it's a lot less easy to categorize them uh, than, you know, I expected initially. Right. And I think that's one of the real strengths of your monograph is that, you know, you, incl you include a lot of your dialogue and text directly from uh, the words of these people. And so it gives a chance to see how, you know, oftentimes in very, what we might identify as like non-academic kind of speech, which I think is a good thing oftentimes for the sake of clarity, but you really get a chance to see people articulate this question or the answer to this question of like, what does Sufism mean to you? Right. And yeah, you get a lot of different sorts of responses. And so this question, obviously that you're asking throughout the book, what is Sufism? And you're getting all sorts of different responses. Uh, you refer to what you call classical Sufism and mm -hmm. sometimes contrast that with newer, maybe more Western forms of Sufism. Mm -hmm. So could you give us a sense of what you mean by, classical Sufism in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think talking about classical Sufism is, is talking about Sufism as it sort of crystallized in uh, largely, we could say, just say the medieval period. Um, but, but classical Sufism is usually associated with uh, some of the uh, formulators of the tradition uh, or articulators of the tradition, right? So people uh, like uh, Al-Khazali, uh, you know, Rumi, Ibn al-Arabi, um, you know, people like that, uh, I, I think beyond the, the sort of authors, the figures of classical Sufism, you tend to see more uh, within the classical tradition, a, a pretty comfortable synthesis, definitely after, uh, you know, 10th, 11th centuries of, of Sufism with the other discourses of the Islamic tradition. So there's a sense in which Sufism is relatively seamlessly integrated into a holistic Islamic paradigm that includes the Sharia, that includes Kalam, uh, the Islamic theology, um, is, you know, Islamic philosophy to a great degree. And so you see it uh, relatively well integrated into the larger Islamic tradition. Um, now, that isn't something that uh, you see consistently in Sufism in North America. There are certainly Sufi teachers who um, perpetuate that what we might call classical synthesis um, you know, we might even call this more broadly the sort of classical Sunni synthesis of uh, elements of philosophy, theology, law, and uh, Sufi spirituality. Um, and so certainly, you know, you, you see that being perpetuated, but it isn't the only game in town, so to speak. Uh, there's, there's kind of a, a range of approaches to that tradition. So could you tell us about some of those ranges? And so the... The terms often are really important, right? Whether people want to call themselves Islamic Sufis or, or how other people might want to frame them and call it quasi-Islamic Sufism or non-Islamic Sufism. Mm -hmm. so could you tell us about sort of the range of these categories and also what's at stake in the names that people use? Yeah, and I mean, and I think this was also one of the things I found is I wanted to talk to teachers themselves and say, hey, what do you think of these categories? 
you know, I mean, as, as, as scholars uh, of religion, we, we formulate categories, but I was really intrigued to hear what they had to say. You know, do you think you fit in, in some of these? Uh, how do you understand these terms? You know, I wanted to really uh, get their perspectives on this. And, and what I found is in my conversations with them, there was a lot more nuance than uh, I, I think is always captured in, in categories. Um, now, certainly, uh, there, were, there were some who identified quite closely with Islam in terms of their identity practice, um, emphasizing the things like the five pillars and following the basics of Islamic law uh, as being key to the practice of Sufism. Um, now, even then, though, I found that those teachers who emphasized Islamic identity and practice at the same time often had a very universal sense of Islam. You know, they, they had the sort of a dual sense of Islam, we might say. Uh, Islam is the historical religion um, crystallizing around a set of beliefs and practices and, and laws, uh, but also Islam in this sort of deeper metaphysical meaning of a, a state of being in, in submission and surrender to God. And so you would often find that even identified Muslim Sufi teachers would, would articulate an understanding of Islam that went beyond the confines of the historical tradition. As I, I met different Sufi teachers, I also found some who explicitly identified as non-Islamic, which I thought was interesting. So um, I, I wrote about uh, the Golden Sufi Center and, and Llewellyn Bon Lee in particular as a very interesting case where uh, he identifies as being um, uh, non uh, non Muslim and his order uh, as being non Islamic uh, and yet is perpetuating um, key elements of of what we might call classical Sufism in terms of lineage uh, the importance of relating to a sheikh or or a spiritual teacher um, you know maintaining daily uh, spiritual practice based on the lineage um, so you know really what I found was uh, it, it was there was a lot of nuance that was not being captured in the categories, and some categories I, I didn't really feel were all that workable. You know, nobody I think wants to be called quasi-Islamic, for instance. I don't think it's something that people really identify with. Uh, nobody wants to be called New Age. Um, you know, that that term in particular was one that most people bristled against, um, and and I think with good reason. I mean, it's a largely uh, pejorative term, I think now. So, um, yeah. So did, did you find that if you, like, asked people, you know, tell me about your tradition, would they volunteer, like, we're non-Islamic Sufis? Or is that the kind of thing that would come up because there was a question you were, like, specifically interested in learning about? Yeah, well, you know, I was specifically asking them about their understanding of the relationship between Sufism and Islam. Uh, because it is a controversial issue. Uh, for both Muslims and non-Muslims, and it's it's also a point of, of a key point of difference between uh, Sufi orders in North America. Um, so it was something that I was specifically getting at, and I, I really wanted them to speak to their understanding of, of Islam and Sufism and how the two relate. Um, so certainly, I was asking them questions on that subject. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, I, I got very different answers, right? I mean, I, I think of um, even Zia Pirzia Zia Khan. Uh, uh, the Iniati order or the Sufi order international, um, who in, in some ways has been steering that order in what we might call a more traditional or Islamic, uh, direction. You know, it, it has a, a quite universalistic history in the sense that the teachings of the order, um, were, were open to all. And, and most of the followers of, uh, Iniyat Khan's predecessors, uh, didn't consider themselves to be Muslim. Um, but Pirzia Enia Khan says, I do, you know, he said, I do consider myself to be Muslim and I, and I see this order as, as 
you know, grounded in uh, Islamic teachings in some sense, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was just uh, having them speak about their understanding of, of Islam and Sufism really gave me a lot of insight into um, the variety of approaches to the subject. Mm-hmm. And so you've said a little bit about why these so-called non-Islamic Sufis would have something to say about the relationship between Islam and Sufism. Can you also say why the idea of Sufism itself is even controversial within a sort of more, quote-unquote, orthodox kind of Islamic framework? Yeah, I mean, there's a really sort of interesting history here. Um, You know, for any of us who do uh, Islamic studies, uh, pretty early on, you you can't help but appreciate the prevalence of uh, what we would now call Sufism within the pre-modern Islamic tradition. Uh, I mean, even sort of separating it out as its own category at times doesn't really fit with what was going on. I mean, it was just so uh, fully integrated into Muslim devotional life uh, that in some cases, you know, to to really separate it out would be uh, impossible. Um, Now, that prevalence uh, of of Sufism uh, has really changed. I mean, I think it it had a, a relatively comfortable place uh, within the Islamic tradition for, for centuries, as, as I said, as a sort of integral part of it. Um, but really in the past few centuries, we've seen anti-Sufi movements develop uh, and uh, gain, I think, a significant amount of uh, influence globally. And this has really marginalized Sufis uh, in Muslim communities uh, in the past, you know, definitely in the past century, but I would say even more so in the past 50 or 60 years, we've seen a pretty concerted marginalization of Sufi movements and it, it's largely from movements that are affiliated with what we might call the sort of Salafi movement, which, of course, you know, there's there's a number of different approaches within that. But they tend to share a suspicion of uh, Sufi movements as being, um, uh, you know, having religious innovations, um, you know, divinizing material objects or people. Uh, and those sort of suspicions of Sufism, even if you have Muslims who aren't specifically affiliated with Salafi movements, those suspicions of Sufism have really percolated quite widely. Uh, and so I think there is a, a lot of controversy around now today, the place of Sufism in Islam, you know, a controversy we, would, we wouldn't have seen or would have been inconceivable, you know, three or four centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And the irony, perhaps, I'd be interested in what you think, is if these, you know, like so-called anti-Sufi folk looked at a lot of incarnations of Western Sufism, it would like confirm their worst fears about innovation and like not taking the tradition seriously. Right. And I think this is why it's a particularly charged topic. You know, you have a lot of um, Muslim Sufis who in some ways, not always, but in some ways want to distance themselves from some of these more... um, non-Islamic forms of Sufism, because as you say, it seems to uh, confirm the, the worst fears of, of the anti-Sufi movements. And so there's a sense of, well, no, we really need to distinguish Islamic Sufism from uh, Sufism that is less or, or non-Islamic. Uh, um, so, I mean, I, I certainly get the, the, let's say, historical impetus behind those things. But, you know, my interest was to really just try to document the diversity of Sufism in North America in its fullness. And, you know, the readers can make their own decisions about what is authentic or not. You know, I just really wanted to give voice to the different perspectives and really, uh, you know, present them as as, uh, fully and and as nuanced as possible. Right. And I I appreciated that reading the book as well is the the tone that you, that, that really pervaded the text was 
fair-minded in, in a way that was intentional and I, and I think as we discussed that really gives voice to the people you're interviewing so in terms of like dates um, which I think is another strength of the book you are, are clear about how very historical uh, time periods come together so when, when was it that Sufism first came to the West and the, the idea of dissociating Sufism from Islam began to take place in a clear, articulate sort of way? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And so when we're talking about, you know, Sufism coming to the West, you know, I think we need to distinguish between uh, Sufism as a uh, literary tradition. So certainly um, there were various scholars of the Orient, called Orientalists, um, who were studying uh, Persian literature in particular and Persian Sufi literature. Um, and, and this literature, I think, was one of the first ways in which Westerners in, encountered Sufism. Um, and they quite liked it, but they didn't think that it was very Islamic, in part because, as, as we know, some of the Persian uh, Sufi poetry has a sort of countercultural um, approach. Not, not always really understood, though. I mean, it, it's countercultural within an Islamic context. Um, but I, I don't think that uh, people like, um, you know, William Jones or, uh, you know, they didn't always have that, that sense of how this poetry fit into a broader, what we might call Islamic paradigm. Um, so certainly, you know, in, in the um, late 18th century and into the early 19th century, there's, there's this interest in um, Sufi poetry uh, but really, as a, as a practice, uh, as, as a sort of living tradition, we might say, uh, transmitted as it's historically been transmitted from a, from a sheikh from a, or sheikha, from a, a teacher to uh, students, you know, that didn't really happen in the West until more the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and that's where we see individuals, particularly uh, Iniyat, Hazrat Iniyat Khan, uh, who is the, the founder of what was the Sufi Order of the West and the Sufi Order International, now the Inyati Order. Um, and, and so he presented Sufism in a very particular way. Uh, interestingly enough, he initially attempted to teach uh, some more Islamically, we might say, grounded practices to Westerners, to both Europeans and North Americans, but he found they didn't have a whole lot of interest in it. Uh, and so he increasingly decided, well, if I'm going to transmit this tradition, you know, I need to transform it, so to speak, uh, and quite radically. And so a number of his students uh, being more involved with the theosophical movement, he started to basically transmit elements of his Chishti uh, Sufi lineage um, in a more theosophical model, in a, in a theosophical form. And so certainly there we get a, a separation of, of Sufism from Islamic identity and practice, uh, and that, uh, I think, has been influential historically. Now, interestingly enough, around the same time uh, in, in Europe, we, we see uh, René Guénon, who uh, is seen as being really the first founder of what's called the perennialist or traditionalist movement. And Guénon uh, converted to Islam, in, in a sense. Uh, I mean, he certainly was a practicing Muslim uh, and became uh, a Sufi. And, and his particular approach, most, most often called the traditionalist approach, uh, basically sees Sufism as something that must be practiced uh, w within the realm of Muslim identity uh, and law. And so really we see these two kinds of approaches uh, in early 20th century um, Western countries. One where you have 
a European convert saying that Sufism can only authentically be practiced within the confines of Islamic identity and law, and a born uh, Muslim Sufi teacher sort of bringing Sufism uh, beyond or outside of uh, the confines of, of Islamic identity and, and practice. If we wanted to try and understand this kind of relationship in modern terms, would this be something like spiritual but not religious? Well, it's it's an interesting term, you know, and I, and I think with a lot of these terms, it, it becomes difficult in part because not everyone agrees on precisely how to define these, and, and really they're, they're categories that we've created for relatively diffuse uh, phenomena. So... Um, they're inherently difficult to define, I think. Um, you know, one of the ways, why, I mean, I think there is an element of Sufi practice that certainly corresponds with what we might call New Age or what we might call spiritual but not religious. I, I've tended not to use those terms in my research because I've been focusing on Sufism as it's practiced uh, within Sufi orders. And so I think there's there's something a little bit different there. Like, I'll give you an example. If um, let's say you're somebody who's read a few books of Sufi poetry and it really resonates with you, um, but you have really a whole host of, of spiritual reading and interests and practices, but maybe you start calling yourself Sufi or you start meeting up with some people and reading some Sufi poetry together. Um, you know, sure, in that way we could call that spiritual but not religious. It's relatively loose. Uh, it's relatively diffuse. Uh, it's eclectic. Uh, it's profoundly individualistic. Um, so sure, I mean, I think those terms might fit a bit better. But if you look at um, Sufism as it's practiced in North America within the orders, even those ones that uh, identify less with Islam, you still find that it doesn't really fit the spiritual but not religious or New Age models. You know, rather than being a sort of eclectic, individualistic practice, they're still usually based quite closely around a particular sheikh uh, or sheikha. So they're usually based around a, a Sufi teacher that one enters into a master-disciple relationship with uh, and, and has a sort of long-term commitment to that teacher and that uh, particular lineage and, you know, consistently engages with the practice of that lineage. You know, I have a little bit harder of a time calling that, you know, New Age or, or spiritual but not religious uh, because it, it tends to fit within more what we might call, you know, classical or traditional models of, of contemplative uh, paths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the Golden Sufi Center, like you're saying, is a really interesting model of that because there are are all of these sorts of clear connections to what we might call classical Sufism, even if its uh, participants resist the the Muslim kind of language. But also along that that note, did you find that especially the non-Islamic Sufi folks that you were interviewing, did they have any uh, resonance or discomfort with thinking about what they're doing as religious and religion? I, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I didn't necessarily ask them about this question of, of, you know, spiritual or religious. You know, that wasn't, those weren't really terms that um, I was using in my interview questions. It was more, uh, you know, how do they uh, identify themselves vis-a-vis Islam or, or how do they understand the nature of Sufism uh, in, in relation to Islam? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and again, it's kind of a, a tough one because there, it really comes down to how we're defining these, these notoriously difficult to define terms, uh, spiritual and religious. I mean, I know there are some scholars of uh, SBNR or, or spiritual but not religious who will say, well, look, 
you know, it's all ultimately religious, you know, in some form. It's just a different form of religion or, you know, so you can kind of get into these uh, debates. But um, I, I think with people who fell along the uh, closer to the, the non-Islamic uh, spectrum, uh, end of the spectrum, there was really some, some interesting differences. I mean, I, I think uh, there certainly is a sense of tying uh, Sufi authenticity to Islam that uh, has emerged largely since the 1960s when you started having more uh, populations of, of Muslims coming here from various parts of traditionally Muslim countries who themselves understood Sufism as being something inherently Islamic and, and authentic Sufism as being something inherently Islamic. Um, you did see a response from the, uh, following the 1960s of some Sufi teachers who had been more affiliated with uh, the non-Islamic or universalistic trends increasingly tying their traditions uh, to Islamic roots. Um, for others, though, you, you see less of that movement, less of a sense of saying, well, we need to identify more with Islam. But, but certainly what I found is they all, as a rule, I mean, and I guess they're, they're certainly a part of the order system, but they, as a rule, they all emphasize the importance of lineage. That was something that, I, that started to be foregrounded, is that Regardless of how they identified with Islam, uh, you know, having a lineage of teachers um, going back to the Prophet Muhammad uh, and being able to show that you you are a part of this lineage uh, was was really important. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned a few of the key figures that have played a role in the history of Sufism in the West, Sufism in North America, and one person you you alluded to is Sayyid Hussein Nasser. Your, your beautiful example of the handwritten letter. Could you say a little bit more about uh, what you were able to discuss with him when you interviewed him, as well as his, his position in this tradition more broadly, especially since he's a little bit unusual because he's, he's an Islamic studies scholar as well? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, Saito Sain Nasser is, is very uh, interesting in terms of his relationship with what we might call you know, the, the broader category of Sufism in North America. As you say, he's a very well-known um, uh, scholar of Islamic studies, uh, very influential. He's, he's trained a lot of very important scholars in the field. Um, but what is less well-known about Saito Nasser is that he himself is a sheikh, is a Sufi teacher within a, a relatively unique Sufi order uh, called the Maryamiya, which is a branch of the Shadali order, that was founded by a European uh, spiritual teacher, uh, Fritjof Shuan. Um, and this particular teacher, who was, a, was an associate of uh, Genon's, uh, had a, a very particular approach, which again we call uh, either traditionalism or perennialism. Uh, but certainly it's an approach that uh, differentiates itself somewhat from what we might call mainstream or traditionally orthodox versions of Islam. Uh, it is uh, definitely universalistic in the sense that perennialists believe that um, at, at the heart of every religious tradition uh, is a contemplative or esoteric path that is um, fundamentally sound, we might say. That, you know, that, that basically the different religions are different expressions of this higher truth and that their contemplative or esoteric traditions offer genuine paths to this, this higher truth. And so there is a real universalism to the perennialist movement, and certainly Nasser uh, shares that. But the, the reason why they're also called traditionalists is the sense of, that Gwenon and Shuan had that uh, Nasser uh, continues to have, 
that uh, these esoteric or contemplative paths found in Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, indigenous traditions, uh, that although they're all valid, they all need to be practiced within their respective religious forms. So there's a, a strong emphasis on religious form and adhering to a religious form. So you get an interesting mix of um, an emphasis on you know, identifying, in, in the case of Sufism, uh, identifying with Islam, uh, following the basics of the Sharia, um, you know, fulfilling the, the obligations of, of the religious, of, of religious practice, while at the same time uh, having this sort of doctrine that uh, tends to see really it being equally legitimate to follow Buddhist contemplative traditions as long as one is a Buddhist and, and really seeing, um, you know, no difference between the two as long as one is adhering to the religious form. I think exactly what you've articulated, by the way. I hope that undergraduates especially will listen to New Books in Islamic Studies interviews as well as this interview, because I feel like, in a really clear way, you just articulated how like weird religion is when you pay attention <laughs> to details, and that these sort of simplistic you know, visions break down quite quickly when you when you start to ask some of the more important questions. So, so thank you for that, especially for my students. So... So Syed Hussein Nasser fits into this Islamic Sufi paradigm, but it's also a little unusual because he has this European teacher who um, initiated this order in a bit of an unusual way. Uh, could you say something about some of the more, quote-unquote, Islamic Sufi orders in the United States that you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly, I mean, one example would be the um, Jarahi order, uh, in the United States is one that in general uh, tends to be a bit more closely aligned with Islamic identity and, and practice. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and it really, I think, perpetuates some, some more traditional patterns. But of course, one of the very interesting things that I found when I was looking at uh, the Jarahi order in the United States is that there are a number of branches of the Jarahi order. Um, and so when you look at the different branches of the Jarahi order uh, in the United States, uh, you, you see some very interesting differences in, in how Islamic identity and practice is being taught. Um, so if you look at the branch of the Jarahi order that's led by uh, Tosin Bayrak, um, it's a little bit more what we might call traditionally oriented. It's, it's more connected with the um, heads of the order in uh, Turkey is where it originates from. And it's a branch of the Jarahis that... Um, will allow people who are non-Muslim to be associates of the order, uh, but will not allow them to be full members. So one, if one is going to be a full member of this branch of the Jarahi order, one does need to be Muslim. Uh, and I've attended uh, a number of their sessions, and they're always, uh, their dhikr practice, their practice of the recitation of um, various prayers and, and God's names and such is, is always framed by uh, the, the Salat, so doing the Islamic daily prayers, uh, they meet, they tend to meet in mosques. Um, they tend to maintain, uh, traditional norms of Islamic law in terms of gender separation and, and dress. Um, but what's interesting of course is, is even that particular branch. When I was speaking with, um, uh, Robert Frazier, who is a sheikh of this traditional, more traditional branch of the Jarahi order in California, you know, he really emphasized, again, this sort of dual understanding of Islam that, well, yes, you know, basically we, we are Muslims and we, we follow the Sharia. But what Islam really is, is something that goes beyond all of that. 
you know, it, it, it's something that, uh, you know, he, he actually quoted a, a saying from his sheikh, uh, Muzaffar Ozak, a Turkish sheikh, who really brought this order over, who said, you know, sometimes Muslims are the hardest people to make Muslim, right? Which is this idea that, you know, you may have the identity and you may have the practice, but are you really in the spiritual state of being in submission or surrender to God? So I was always very fascinated by how even teachers who were very grounded within um, what we might call a traditional or orthodox form of, of Sufism um, still wanted to emphasize these sort of more universal metaphysical meanings of Islam. Um, and now if we look at the other branch of the Jirahi order led by uh, Sheikh Fariha in, uh, in New York, um, again, she, she is Muslim. The majority of her followers are Muslims, but one doesn't have to be Muslim to be a full member of the group. Um, so she said, look, you should, you still need to love the prophet Muhammad and you need to, you know, love this path and, and want to practice it, but you don't necessarily have to be, uh, a Muslim. And so there is more of a mix of Muslims and non-Muslims in that particular group. Uh, and the other thing that, uh, Sheikh Afriha said is she said, you know, look, we teach Islamic practices like Salat, but we don't teach them as obligations. So that would be an important difference between the um, more traditional branch of the Jirahi order, which would, for the Muslim members, they would understand Salat as being something that, as, as all Muslims tend to uh, understand it, as something that is obligatory according to the Islamic legal tradition. Uh, but from Sheikh Afriha's perspective, she said, you know, we don't teach these things as obligations. We teach them, but we teach them as things that people do because they're spiritually effective, because they, they lead to spiritual knowledge. So we teach them as effective tools that you don't have to do, but if you try out, you'll probably find that they're useful. So a kind of very interesting um, nuance there in, in the approach to uh, Islamic practice. Mm-hmm. So, so you've, you, along the lines of all this diversity, and you've, you've said a bit about the sort of um, tolerance, for lack of a better word, that different teachers and groups exhibit toward one another, was that something that surprised you when you started talking to members of different groups that might have different, really, really different visions of what Islam and Sufism is, like the judgment or lack of judgment that they ended up having towards each other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall, I was probably somewhat surprised by how little uh, judgment there was between the groups. Um, I mean, one was uh, one example of that was talking to. Haisham Kibani, Sheikh Haisham Kibani, uh, a leader of the Naqshbandi Haqqani order. And uh, he is somebody who maintains a very traditional style of dress. Uh, he's somebody who's written books on Islamic law and closely identifies with what we might call the classical synthesis of uh, Sharia and theology and uh, Sufi spiritual practice. And so it was somebody that I, I he was somebody that I expected might um, have um, criticisms for groups that were, were adhering less to uh, Islamic identity and practice, but he really didn't. You know, he said, I, I would never want to judge because, you know, he said, look, this is how we approach it. We understand it as a whole package that includes Islamic identity and practice. Uh, I know some people don't, but he said, you know, we're, we're following how we've been taught and what we think is best, and they're following how they've been taught and what they think is best, and, you know, who am I to judge? I, I really have no say. Um, I found people more on the uh, closer to the non-Islamic uh, side of the spectrum also saying, you know, look, this is how we've been taught. I mean, Llewellyn Von Lee said, you know, my teachers very specifically taught this in a non-Islamic way, but that's just because that's how they were taught. 
And he said other people understand Sufism more as an integral part of Islam, and, and that's how they've been taught. And so, you know, what, there's really no problem here. They're just different approaches. Um, the only exception to that, I would say, was when I did interview Said Hussein Nasser, again reflecting the traditionalist sense that um, uh, spiritual practice is only valid within a particular religious form. He was somebody who, who definitely was more vocally critical of uh, non-Islamic Sufism or what he would call sometimes New Age or California Sufism. Um, and these, these were terms that he used specifically for what he felt were forms of Sufism disconnected from the Islamic tradition that he felt were, were not really going to be effective spiritually. So, he, and, and again, that comes out of this uh, traditionalist or perennialist school of thought, which tends to have a pretty strong position on the, the need for a religious form um, for spiritual practice to be valid. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the figures you've talked about might have roots in different parts of the world, whether it's Iran or India or even Western Europe. Uh, as, as you did your research, was the demographic component of these group members something that you found to be telling or, or something that the practitioners re- reflected on? I mean, it, it, it's an it's an interesting question on on you know what are what are the orders um, you know what what are they uh, how, how do they work in terms of uh, who who's joining uh, who's who's becoming a part of these uh, orders and and I think one thing that you that I that surprised me in some cases uh, was the way in which orders that I suspected to be almost entirely uh, white um, you know middle or upper class uh, people. Uh, people that we tend to associate more with uh, what we might call the New Age movement or spiritual but not religious. Uh, in some cases, those orders had a very interesting demographic uh, mix. Uh, for instance, when I was at the, uh, it's called the Abode of the Message, which is uh, uh, quite a beautiful center in upstate New York for the Sufi Order International or now the Iniati Order. Um, and, and sure enough, I mean, it was ma- majority um, demographically uh, white, but it was also interesting to meet, um, you know, Muslims who were participating in the order uh, who had, you know, recently come to the U.S. from other parts of the world. So, you know, I remember in the kitchen of, of this particular center, um, just sort of chatting with people there and, and chatting with a Tunisian uh, Muslim who, uh, you know, had been in the United States for a few years and was wanting to connect with Sufism and, and found this particular group to be one through which uh, he connected to the tradition. So. I mean, examples like that I, I found kind of striking. But but certainly I think you could say some groups uh, exhibited more demographic diversity. Um, the Naqshbandi Haqqanis, for instance, uh, are, are a group where you see a, a pretty um, apparent mixture of uh, African-Americans, uh, white Americans, um, Muslims uh, from South Asia or the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, some groups I would say were did stand out. Um, in terms of the diversity. Uh, also, the Bawa Mahadeen Fellowship is an uh, exemplary there. Um, it's a group that uh, early on in its history uh, drew people from the Philadelphia area from, from a whole variety of backgrounds. And so it's, it's kind of maintained that uh, demographic diversity to this day. Mm-hmm. So continuing along the lines of demographic diversity and representing the world, uh, I know you've, if we could look beyond the book to a degree, at the book, from beyond the book. You've mm-hmm. spent a bit of time traveling throughout the Muslim world. I was wondering, 
do you, have you had any kind of striking interactions with people in Muslim-majority countries when you tell them about the kind of thing that you're studying, which is already going to seem pretty unusual to a lot of people in America, and so I'd right. imagine it might resonate with people in a particular way abroad? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that I, I can say, I mean, when I, I was in Egypt for uh, about a month this summer, and... Um, you know, one of the things that you, you find in a place like Egypt is, is an interesting sort of polarization in how Muslims understand Sufism. And this gets back to a little bit what we were talking about earlier. So, um, you know, obviously, I, I, in places like Alexandria, I would go visit uh, Sufi mosques and Sufi shrines. And of course, when you speak to Muslims there, you know, really, you do get this sense of a total seamlessness. I, again, the categories of Sufism and Islam are not as distinct uh, in, in places like that as they are here, where we tend to think of Sufism as this distinct analytical category, um, which I just don't know if it is quite as much. Uh, I, again, it's, it seems to be much more integrated in, into Muslim life for those Muslims who participate in what we call Sufism. Right. Right. But, but the interesting thing is, of course, you also get Muslims who are uh, completely convinced of the totally un-Islamic nature of Sufism. And so I would also have experiences where I would speak to them about what I was studying. And it was almost like I couldn't really say the term Sufism without them saying, look, I really have to tell you this has nothing to do with Islam. Uh, you know, this is a, a something that really is a total uh, perversion of the religion. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something that uh, has been brought in from other religions. And, uh, you know, so you know, great, you can study Sufism, but just know it doesn't really have anything to do with Islam. So that, that kind of very interesting polarity between Muslims who have a hard time even separating the categories of Sufism and Islam because they're so seamlessly integrated, and Muslims who have a hard time even imagining the two spoken in the same sentence. Uh, so, you know, that, that was something really interesting to encounter. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this theme of what is the relationship between Sufism and Islam is like kind of the perennial question in both within the United States and various types of Sufi orders and abroad. It's something people struggle with. And I think your, your book, in a way, tries to get at some of the different ways you can answer that question. That's exactly right. I think so, yeah. So along the lines of like pedagogically asking questions and guiding people towards answers. You're a university professor. You wrote this book in a very accessible manner. So I couldn't help but wonder either do you or do you have plans to use this or excerpts from it in the classroom? Yeah, it's a great question. And I was fortunate enough to teach a seminar on Sufism in the fall of last year. Uh, which is a really great class that I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought I had uh, wonderful students uh, here at the University of, of Winnipeg, uh, religion majors uh, predominantly, which was, which was nice. And uh, so we had this course on Sufism, and, and towards the end of the course, we focused on, on contemporary Sufism and Sufism in North America. And so I was able to um, use some chapters of the book uh, in the class. I didn't assign the whole book because, you know, uh, Sufism in North America wasn't the focus of the entire course, but um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I like to do if I'm including my own work is, is I'm just going to throw this out there. I think it's good to kind of acknowledge the fact that it can come off as being presumptuous. 
I mean, I think we've all had uh, times where people are assigning their own stuff and sometimes students kind of joke, oh, you know, of course we're going to be reading their stuff. Right, right. So I, I like to kind of joke it and say, look, I, I know I'm assigning you my own stuff, but, you know, here's why. You know, here's why I think it actually does fit with, with what we're trying to do. Um, but I actually found it, it it's nice in a way, and I, I think students actually enjoy it in a sense because they know that they can they can ask you a lot of questions about something that you've written. They can ask you questions about why you've, you've chosen to present things in a certain way. Uh, if they find an uh, element of an interview interesting, they can say, oh, what was it like to actually meet that person? Or, you know, so there's, there's really a lot of unpacking that can be done with uh, stuff you've written yourself and especially uh, material that, that's connected with your, um, with your main area of research. And so I found that actually really nice to be able to sort of go off on these tangents into the, the backgrounds uh, the, the, to the research, you know, the contexts to the research. Um, so, I, yeah, I thought it was a good experience. So, so building off that, one of the things that you explore in the book is how these different Sufi teachers sort of adapt their message according to their audience. Mm-hmm. And so do you, do you have any, any recommendations for educators in terms of how they, they might use excerpts from your book or teach about Sufism in the West more broadly to North American audiences in particular? Like what is, what's going to resonate with an undergraduate you think uh, most, most well? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think one of the things that's, that's incredibly useful, and I, I think anybody who, who teaches uh, religion um, has a pretty clear sense of this, is, is always emphasizing the diversity within traditions. Uh, I, I think people tend to formulate these ideas of religion as a sort of static um, category, uh, unified. And I think it's so important to show them why there's incredible diversity and dynamism within traditions to really make that understanding, uh, help them under, understand that in a more complex way. And so I think one of the, the uses of a book like this is uh, definitely to show people the, uh, the extent uh, of, of this diversity within a tradition like Sufism, which I think can only help their, their general sense of, of diversities within religion in, in general. So like going, so going beyond the classroom, so I'd like to ask you one more question before we, we conclude things and ask you a little bit about current and future projects. But our... So I think it's clear the book is written towards a scholarly audience, at least, as well as maybe other kinds of audiences, who's interested in American religion and Sufism and how these things intersect. Are, mm-hmm. there, are there any scholarly audiences that you would like to reach that you think might not be immediately inclined to pick up the book or broach the topic for whatever reason? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a book like this... Um, it should should really be of interest to people who uh, do ethnography, uh, who do the sociology of religion. I mean, book, books like this can be something of a case study uh, that that helps them uh, theorize. So, I, I mean, I, I think it, it could uh, have interest uh, to that that broader um, uh, population of scholars. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder about uh, Islamic studies scholars as, as well. I mean, sometimes I know we can be trained in a, in a more uh, classical orientation, we might say, of, of languages and texts. But I think it's also important for, uh, for, for scholars of classical traditions to uh, get a sense of um, con- contemporary traditions, what we might say, you know, living traditions. Uh, so I would hope it would be of interest to people from those backgrounds as well. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, again, I found it a really... 
challenging but also accessible read and found myself edified by it. So before I conclude, one of the things we like to do at New Books and Islamic Studies as well is ask our authors about current as well as future projects that you're working on. So is there anything you're currently working on that you could share with us, either that's related to the book or that goes beyond the book? Yeah, I mean, I've got a few projects that that I think are are relatively related. Um, I've just completed uh, a manuscript of an introduction to Sufism with uh, co-author uh, Mina Sharifi Funk. Uh, it's called Unveiling Sufism from Manhattan to Mecca. Uh, that should be coming out next year. Um, and that's a, an introductory text to Sufism, but one that we are, are trying to um, write in a, in a unique way, we, we hope. Um, basically, we, we are doing a reverse chronology. So most introductions begin with either the sort of pre-Islamic Near East um, you know, Muhammad and the Quran, and then kind of work from there. But we're, we're, we call it from Manhattan to Mecca, unveiling Sufism from Manhattan to Mecca, because we begin with Sufism in the here and now in contemporary North America. And then in each chapter, work back through history until we get to the um, formative period of, of the Sufi tradition and, and before. Um, the other thing we're doing with that book is integrating uh, in each chapter, looking at how Sufism relates to politics uh, philosophy, spiritual practice, and also the arts. So we're really trying to give a, a three-dimensional picture of how Sufism has functioned in, in different periods uh, of time. Um, so pretty excited to have that book come out next year. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, we've got a, a, another project that we're doing with uh, Shobana Xavier on contemporary Sufism more, more generally. Uh, and that's trying to pick up some of the the trends that we're we're seeing in contemporary Sufism more globally, not uh, just limited to North America. Sounds like an exciting agenda, and so grateful that you could share a little bit about your book with us today and your your future plans. So, thank you again, Rory. I learned a lot from your book. I, I know it's uh, inspired ways I want to talk about things with my students, and I can expect other people have similar experiences. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's fantastic to hear, and uh, thank you very much, Elliot, for inviting me. I, it was my pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Rory Dixon, Assistant Professor of Religion and Culture at the University of Winnipeg, about his exciting new book, Living Sufism in North America Between Tradition and Transformation, published by the State University of New York Press, in 2015. Thanks for listening.